Oh, Jesus, you are so much bigger and more beautiful than our minds could possibly grasp. We come to you this morning having so many things distracting us from what your word says, from what your spirit is teaching us through your word, and of who you really are. Jesus, would you please grant us the grace to turn our eyes off of the many things that trouble us and to put them firmly on you? Would we have a fresh sense of, our lo of love for you, a fresh conviction to serve you, and an unending reason to worship you? Oh, Jesus, grant us this and so much more, we pray in your name. Amen. Ask any author and they'll tell you one of the hardest things about writing a story is the ending. Oh, you, you may know this. Maybe take one of your favorite shows that you loved following along the way. Maybe it stumbled to the finish line. The ending wasn't quite satisfying. It happens in movies all the time. But one of the most famous examples, one of the most successful movies of all time, Titanic. 23 years ago, it came out. I think that's far enough in the past that I can go ahead and give you a spoiler. Sorry if you haven't heard it by now. Uh, you understand the challenge. A movie about the Titanic, everyone kind of knows where this ship is going. Somehow or the other, they had to end the story. And, you know, the two lovebirds, they end up in the water together. There's one piece of driftwood, and it's not big enough for them both. So Rose ends up on top of the driftwood, and, and Jack freezes, and he goes, goes off into the deep. Well, the fans were not pleased with that ending, and to this day, the director, James Cameron, still gets hate mail saying, there was enough room on that driftwood. <laughs> well, someone finally put this to rest. Mythbusters took this up. They did an episode on it, and they got their two Mythbusters in the water, and they uh, did a test to see, and it turns out there was enough room on the driftwood. <laughs> which means Jack died in vain. To quote Jamie Heinemann, uh, Jack should have learned that discretion is the better part of valor. <laughs> well, we all know the disappointment of an ending that doesn't quite live up to the hype. But I'm so thankful that the writer John, as he came to the end of what is undoubtedly a magisterial book, a book that so gloriously presents Jesus, that, that he did not disappoint that he, in fact, left one of the best portraits of Jesus for last. We come to John 21, 15 through 25, where we see three attributes of King Jesus that will draw us to love him and serve him and worship him as we never have before. We'll see that in three sections this morning. In 15 through 17, we will see that uh, Jesus' restoration of love, his restoration of love. Second, in 18 through 23, we'll see his incomparable calling, his incomparable call for this disciple and for each of us. And then finally, in 24 through 25, we'll see his unending accomplishments, his unending accomplishments and the reasons we have to worship him for all eternity. And in all of this, we'll see that we are to love Jesus with our heart, to serve him with conviction, and ultimately to worship him forever. Let's begin by looking in 15 through 17. 
his restoration of love. In verse 15, we read, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to them, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. If you remember back a few weeks, there was a breakfast happening that was a meal like none other. The disciples had already seen Jesus appear to them a couple times after his resurrection. They were back in Galilee out on the lake doing some fishing, just going about normal life when Jesus showed up again on the shore. He told them how to get a catch, turned out to be a miracle catch. Peter jumps out of the boat in excitement, goes to meet Jesus at shore. They all arrive, they bring the, the catch back with them, and then they have breakfast with Jesus. And that would have been a, an amazing breakfast for multiple reasons. I, I don't think any of us have ever had breakfast with someone who came back from the dead. Certainly none of us have had uh, for a meal a miracle, the catch itself. And yet I can't help but think that there might have been a sense of tension in the air, maybe even a, an elephant in the room. I can't help but wonder if the disciples are wondering what in the world is Jesus going to do with Peter? Now, I once had uh, uh, the occasion of being at a wedding where I was put at a table with some family members that had not spoken to each other in years. You could cut the tension with a knife. Uh, I, I can't help but think that breakfast might have felt a little bit like that, the disciples thinking. You know, Peter, he stabbed Jesus in the back. What's Jesus going to do about that? Is he going to forgive him? Could he ever possibly entrust him with any sort of authority again? What, what in the world is Jesus going to do? Well, after breakfast is over, they get their answer. Jesus does a bit of invasive heart surgery on Peter in front of everyone. Pastor Kent Hughes described it this way. He said it's a, an instance of brutal mercy that Jesus does to Peter to restore him and ultimately to restore his love for Jesus. We'll walk through it and then draw some applications along the way. Uh, it begins with the way that Jesus addresses Peter. In verse 15, he said, Simon, son of John. Now, that wasn't just a formal way of referring to Peter. If you were with us a year and a half ago when we preached the beginning of John's gospel, you may remember the calling of Peter to be a disciple. Back in John 1, 41, this is how Jesus called him. He looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Jesus goes back to the very beginning. He pushes the reset button and calls Peter the way he called him one day years ago, years in the past, when their relationship was fresh, when Peter's heart was filled with hope and love for Jesus. It's as if Jesus is inviting Peter, to, let's go back again, Peter. Let's start over. Let's get our relationship back where it needs 
to be. Jesus then asks him a question, a question that is invasive in the highest way. It questions his very love. Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? That these he's talking about is likely the other disciples. So this is Jesus asking Peter, do you love me more than the other people sitting around this fire right now? Do you love me more than the other disciples? Now that may seem like an odd question to ask, but remember who Peter was and remember what he had done to stab Jesus in the back. Peter was that bold, brash disciple. He was always the one to speak up first, to, to look, leap before he looked. He declared that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. He was the one that declared to Jesus that he would never abandon him, even if everyone else had. But of course, Peter was the one who did abandon Jesus. Three times he was asked. Three times he denied even knowing Jesus. And then Jesus stared at him with a stare that looked right through his very soul. Jesus knew that Peter's heart was in desperate need of a renovation. He knew that Peter's love had grown cold and that if he was to restore this man, that he would have to restore his love. And so in front of all of the other disciples, Jesus calls to question Peter's love for Jesus. Now, Peter's response it's not that arrogant sort of boldness we've seen before. It's as if Peter has learned humility. He says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. He doesn't appeal to his own conviction. He, he appeals to Jesus' knowledge of his heart. Peter is a man still with his heart not quite ready to let go of his shame, even though joy is about to invade his heart. Jesus knows exactly what Peter's heart needs. He knows what, where Peter's shame is, and he knows the joy that's awaiting Peter. Now, Jesus knows full well that once Peter has been freed from this paralyzing shame, that he will become a bold witness for him, that his joy will be full. And so Jesus does the hard thing, and points out to Peter the area of his heart that is not yet turned over to Jesus. Well, Jesus tells Peter how it is that his love for him will be shown with a call, feed my lambs. Remember, Jesus called himself the good shepherd. Love for Jesus is going to mean loving Jesus' disciples, loving the flock of God. Peter will be called to be a pastor. Now, there are some people that take this passage and a few others and think that Peter is being called to be the first pope. The Roman Catholic Church, namely, would be the ones pushing that. Uh, now, friends, I don't think that's the way to understand Peter's uh, calling here. It is undoubtedly a great dignity of what Jesus is giving him in terms of an assignment. But Peter's own understanding of himself is not of being a vicar of Christ or some potiff above all other Christians. No, he sees himself as a shepherd, as a pastor, as an elder. You can see this in another book of the Bible that uh, Peter wrote, 1 Peter 5. Uh, listen to how he refers to himself. He says, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker of the glory that's going to be revealed, 
shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Peter went on to live his life as a pastor, shepherding the flock of God, not the first pope. Well, but we need to recognize that this is an incredible dignity that Jesus gives Peter. Peter has not only ignored Jesus, he's plain up betrayed him. And here is Jesus restoring the man in all of his shame in front of all the disciples that are there. Now, there's a question that may come to your mind. Why is it that there's three rounds of this back and forth between Jesus and Peter? Jesus asked that same question three times. Peter's response is basically the same until the third time. The commission Jesus gave is very similar. Why, why, what's going on here? Was Jesus stammering and he wasn't sure that Peter was understanding him? Was, was Peter not making eye contact and Jesus wanted to see the conviction in his eyes? Well, well commentators and interpreters have down through the ages wrestled with this. One very popular answer that's gained a lot of traction uh, is the idea that there are different types of loves that are spoken of in this passage and that different Greek words that are translated the same way in English stand behind them. Uh, one of those words you may be familiar with is agape. Some people would say that's a, like a God, a per perfect sort of a selfless love. There's another love that's used, phileo. That's, uh, some would say, a lower form of love, kind of like brotherly love. The, the idea is that Jesus is calling Peter towards the higher love, to agape, but, but Peter's not ready for that. He, he responds with phileo love. And eventually in the third round, Jesus comes down and meets Peter where he is. Now, maybe you've heard that preached. Maybe you've even been helped by a sermon that preached that, where the preacher preached that. Um, and thank the Lord for how he uses preaching, uh, even when preaching doesn't get something like this entirely right. Um, I, as I've been studying this, I don't think that distinction holds up. Um, in a, a book called Exegetical Fallacies by Dr. D.A. Carson, he teases out a number of reasons why you shouldn't make this sort of sharp distinction along the way, and he summarizes it with this one rather spicy line. He said, it is simply literary nonsense to try and make this distinction. In brief, I'll give you the reasons why I am not convinced that, that we're supposed to differentiate between love uh, in this way. One, it, it makes much more sense that this is just an example of using synonyms to avoid repetition. Jesus does the same thing when he charges Peter with tending the flock, flock of God. He, he calls it feeding his sheep, tending his lambs, caring for the flock. He uses different words, the same idea. We do that all the time in the way we speak. We certainly do it all the time in the way we write. Uh, a second way is if you actually look at the words and the distinction between them, if it just doesn't hold up throughout the Bible. That agape love is used of Demas, who is said to be in love with this present world. Um, it's never, it, you just can't say that it is uh, uniformly used for a higher godly sort of love. And in the same token, that other word, the lower supposed love, is used in the love between the father and the son. Uh, I don't want to say that the father and the son have anything imperfect about their love uh, just because a single word like that is used. So I don't think that distinction holds up as much as we may have been helped by sermons that have preached it that way, as well as it does preaches. But that leads to the question, why in the world... Do they go through this three times? What's the purpose of it? Well, I think there's two reasons. The first, Jesus wants to remove all doubt in front of this group of disciples that Peter is forgiven and restored. Now, that is especially significant because back then, 
in order for something to be legally established, very often, repetition of three was used. If you wanted testimony to be firmly established, you would have it repeated three times, and then everyone would say, it is ironclad what was said. In this way, Jesus makes sure that there is no doubt what he is doing, that Peter is not a second-class disciple. We, maybe we misheard him. No, Jesus is saying he is forgiven and restored. Second reason, I think this is really the central reason. Jesus is restoring Peter, following the same path that Peter failed on. Jesus is meeting Peter in the midst of his shame. And he's applying the medicine of forgiveness to the very place where the wound was incurred. Think back to that moment where Peter failed in his, uh, uh, his testimony to Jesus. Now, there was a crowd that saw Peter on that day. He was around a charcoal fire, was he not? And it was three times that he denied Jesus. Now, as he's restored, there's a crowd around him. There is a charcoal fire, and three times is he forgiven. We have a children's book that we read to Lillian often that captures this perfectly. The author put it this way, Peter failed Jesus three times, so Jesus forgave Peter three times. Peter failed Jesus again and again and again, so Jesus forgave him again and again and again. What we see here is the beauty of the forgiveness of our Savior to even those who have stabbed him in the back, who have failed to be bold witnesses, who have given him every reason to mistrust us, how he not only forgives us, but restores a heart to love him and to serve him. Now, there's a lot that we can draw in application from this. At the most basic level, if you're here this morning and you doubt that Jesus could possibly forgive you, friend, realize the character of Jesus. Realize the mission he came on. Realize who he is. Jesus can forgive sinners, including you, friend. Maybe you're here this morning and there's something that you've done that you are deeply, deeply shameful about. Maybe you replay that action that you took in your head over and over again, condemning yourself over and over again. Maybe even other people know about it. Maybe even it's gone public, and so you were reminded of your shame again and again, and you wonder, could I ever really be restored? Friend, here is an example of a disciple who loved Jesus a ton and yet failed so spectacularly and learned firsthand what Jesus said in Luke 7 is true, that he who is forgiven much loves much. Friend, if you're here and you don't know that you're forgiven, hear the good news of who this Jesus is again. He didn't come to measure his disciples to find out who was worthy of heaven. No, he came to rescue disciples unworthy of anything from God but his wrath. Jesus himself bore our punishment and that means Jesus himself can forgive us by giving us a perfect record of righteousness. Peter is just one example of Christians down through the ages who could say, I've been forgiven because Jesus died for my sins on the cross. Friend, if you're here this morning and you have shame in your heart, leave it behind. Come bring it to Jesus and find all the forgiveness you'll ever need. 
We also need to learn the pattern for how we restore others from the example of how Jesus restores Peter. Did you notice how Jesus brought repentance and restoration in the same realms and same spheres in which it, the sin occurred? He brought Peter back to the moment of his failure, and that's where repentance and forgiveness needed to happen. We need to endeavor to do the same thing. When someone sins against us, or we as a church help someone to try and repent of their sin, we need to try and bring them back to the same arenas where the sin occurred and allow restoration to happen there. With the people that were harmed, with the people that saw Christ's name besmirched, we, we need to bring repentance to the places where sin has brought destruction. And then we need to push forward to full restoration as much as we're able. We, we should never want to have a second class of Christian, someone who's never truly trusted or brought back into fellowship because they, their sin, well, that, that's too, too great for us to forget about. Now, there's obviously a different difference between us and Jesus. Jesus sees the heart perfectly. There are certain things that we do not, are not able to do that Jesus is, and there may be limits to what we're able to do with our imperfect knowledge. But we should endeavor to fully restore so that the restoration and forgiveness of Jesus is seen by all those who watch. Peter is gloriously forgiven and restored, and as a result, his heart, it is set aflame again with love for Jesus. And maybe you're here this morning, friend, and your heart is frankly just grown cold over the years. Maybe it's been a while since you thought of yourself as a bold witness for Jesus. And the last few years have been more about inaction and thinking about other things than they are about enjoying Jesus and telling others about him. Friend, will you remember the joy that you once had? Will you remember what you've been forgiven of? Will you remember the great privilege it is to be the witness of Jesus and go boldly tell the world? Well, Peter, he's restored and his love is restored. And as a result, he has a calling on his life. And that's where we go in this second attribute of Jesus we see this morning. His incomparable calling. In 18 through 23, his incomparable calling. Verse 18, we read, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. What we see in this next section is a problem that Peter faced that every Christian since Peter's day also has to face, the danger of the comparison trap. Oh, you know the comparison trap well. Maybe you get a brand new car with that wonderful new car smell and you drive it home and get in the driveway and you look at the driveway next door and see an even shinier, more expensive new car. Suddenly your nose can't notice that new car smell quite as much for some reason. Or maybe it's uh, a relationship you're so excited about and you can't well to wait to tell your family about it, only to have your news upstaged by a bigger and more obvious commitment of some sort. Or maybe 
it's that perpetual minefield of the comparison trap known as social media. And it's watching other people's perfect little lives with their perfect little kids and their perfect little photos. And and you just find yourself more discouraged about your parenting or grandparenting or, or just your life in general because you can't help but wish you were living their life, at least the life according to social media. Well, it's a problem that faces us all. And thankfully, Jesus shows us the solution to it here. He nips it right in the bud for Peter and he can do it for us also. He begins by giving Peter a preview of what's coming in his life. He gives him a prophecy of what his life will be like, and it's frankly a prophecy of suffering and glory. He tells Peter that one day he will be old, and on that day he won't get to do what he wants to do like when he was young. So much so, someone else is going to dress him, and then someone's going to pick him up and carry him somewhere he doesn't want to go. Then he says that his arms will be stretched out. Now, if we're not sure what it is Jesus is saying, John, the author, gives us a little authorial comment there in verse 19. This he said to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. When we understand he's talking about how Peter will die, it makes much more sense that stretching out of the arms describes someone being stretched out on a cross to be crucified. Now, we don't have video from back in that, those days, but we do have, uh, the accounts we do have from church history give us one story of Peter's life, that he followed Jesus faithfully to the end, and that meant for him literally picking up his cross and dying upon it like Jesus did. Peter's life would be filled with faithful service, and yes, suffering and martyrdom and death following the pattern of Jesus. Now, Jesus sums up this calling that's on Peter's life with two words at the very end there, verse 19. He said to him, follow me, follow me. Now, surely this was a calling on Peter's life, a a calling that none of us exactly have in the same way. This was Jesus calling Peter to live his entire life for Jesus to suffer, and to die for him. I'm sure that at another level in that day, it was also an invitation for Peter to walk with Jesus along the beach. That's where the narrative picks up. He and Jesus start walking along the way, and here's where the comparison trap springs on him. Verse 20, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had leaned back against him during the supper, and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is it to you? You follow me. So the saying spread among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is it to you? So the encounter goes something like this. They're walking along the beach. Peter comes to terms with the calling Jesus is putting in front of him of suffering and glory. And then he has the natural thought. Well, what about that guy, Jesus? Are the other disciples going to have the same difficult, pain-filled life that I will? Peter falls right into the comparison trap. And look how Jesus gets him out of it. He tells him, essentially, none of your business, Peter. He says, what's it to you, Peter? 
Even if he were to live until I come back, Peter, does that change the grace I've given you? Does that change the love for me in your heart? Does that change the dignity you have in serving me, Peter? It shouldn't matter to you one bit. Jesus shows us here that we are to be disciples filled with conviction and service to him, not engaging in comparison about our service to him. We're going to be people of conviction, not of comparison, if we are to joyfully serve Jesus. Now, after that, we get the first instance of fake news. Um, we're, we're told here that a, a saying spread amongst the disciples, this meant that John was never to die. Now, John said that that's not what Jesus said. He was giving a hypothetical to Peter, even if this guy never dies. Now, John did not end up dying a martyr, as far as we know. But his life had plenty of suffering, and one day he did die. But the, that's the point of all this, is that we not fall into the comparison trap and the way that Jesus freed Peter from it. Friends, do you realize that all of us are called to serve Jesus with our whole lives? If you're a Christian, you are called to boldly and convictionally live your life in service to Jesus. Whether that's to be a good boss or uh, an evangelist to your family or to be a good parent during this season or to be a faithful grandparent or to find joy in your singleness, all of us are called to follow Jesus. And none of us will benefit from spending our days comparing ourselves with other Christians. You see, the, the comparison trap can spring on you from multiple angles. Uh, it could spring on you by making you despise the calling that Jesus has on your life. Maybe you're unsatisfied with your job. You find it difficult to be joyful doing the sort of work you're doing. Maybe you look at someone else's job and profession and you say, if only I had that job and I could serve God that way with those resources, then, then I would be happy. Maybe it's the place where you grew up that you despise. You think it's a, a boring town, doesn't have the opportunities. If I could serve God around the world like those missionaries, then, then I would be a faithful Christian. Friend, no matter which way you apply despising your calling, you're doing the same thing to your heart. You're destroying your joy. You are making it so that your life will be one of grumbling, maybe even pride, certainly one that is far more difficult than it could be because you're doing something you're never intended to do. You're trying to make God give the same blessings he's given to someone else to you in your life. Realize, friends, that social media is a, a place where, frankly, it could be very unhealthy for some Christians to go. You can end up despising your life in just a couple of swipes down your home feed. And maybe, honestly, ask yourself this question this week. Is social media actually helpful for my soul? Now, some Christians, I will admit, are able to use social media to the glory of God. Some of us really struggle and friend, if it's something that you can do without, maybe you should. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're in a season of life that makes it easy for you to despise your life. Maybe you think, well, you know, I have young kids in the house. I can't be out 
at Bible studies or I can't be developing evangelistic relationships the way I used to and, and you find yourself just wishing life were different. Yet brother or sister who's called to be a parent, would you remember that no one else is called to be a discipler in your house? These years where you are forming your kids and you are pointing them to Jesus, no one else has this particular calling. Do not despise it, no matter how much you feel like you're missing out on something. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're of an older generation and you find yourself comparing to other seasons in life that seem so fruitful and enjoyable to you. Maybe you can't serve God the way you could in the past. Maybe your body won't let you. Maybe your finances won't let you. For whatever reason, maybe the Lord has a different type of faithfulness for you in this season. Friend, don't despise it. You can only live the life Jesus has given you to live. Let me say that again. You can only live the life Jesus has given you to live. Find joy in serving Jesus in the life he's given you. Don't compare it to anyone else's and and destroy your joy. You you can flip the comparison trap around, go from the other direction. You can end up despising someone else's calling, looking at their life and applying pride and, well, if I had their life, I would do things better. Parents, it's easy to take the things that you are convicted of, the way you should bring up your kids, and to make that the rules for every Christian parent out there. Remember the difference between a conviction and a command. You lead your family the way Jesus has called you to. Leave it to him to judge how other families steward that same responsibility. You know, churches fall into this also. So many of you are new to our church. Praise God for that. You know, there's a temptation here. When you show up to a church, you could find yourself using a phrase very often. Well, I'm so glad that this church does it this way. So much better than my old church that used to fill in the blank. Friend, one day the new church smell will wear off. And you will have plenty of reasons to be dissatisfied with a church that you join. Remember, Jesus calls specific ministries or specific places with specific gifts. It's okay if churches have different ways of serving Jesus. And even if a church may be deficient in a certain area, that's not for us to spend our days comparing and passing judgment. That's for Jesus to do. Let us be faithful to the resources and opportunities that he gives us as a church. There's plenty of that to do. We don't need to spend our time comparing with other churches in an unhelpful way. Because friends, remember, the gospel was never about comparison. Jesus didn't show up on earth and measure some disciples against each other saying, this one was better than this one, so you're with me, you're out. No, no, the the gospel is that all of us are such debtors to grace. All of us were so far away from God that we deserve nothing but the wrath of God. And yet we've all been redeemed by the same blood of Jesus and brought into God's family. Let's endeavor to live the lives Jesus has given us to live to live them with conviction, boldly for his sake. What a privilege it is to serve Jesus. One more portrait of Jesus we have. One final thing. 
even as we've been forgiven and restored, even as we've been called to serve, John ends this great book with a reason that we should worship him forever. 24 through 25, his unending accomplishments, his unending accomplishments. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. I had the pleasure this year of reading a biography of the great evangelist George Whitfield by author Thomas Kidd. Uh, George Whitfield lived a big, bold life for Jesus. He was one of the main sparks that God used to bring about the Great Awakening. He preached up and down the U.S. coast and over in England. It's estimated he preached to millions of people in his day. Now, a big, bold life like that requires a big, beautiful book. And Thomas's kid's book is one of those big books along the way. Uh, it's wonderful because it's all true, and there's so much to say of a life well-lived for Jesus. It's amazing. Well, John gives us two reasons that we can continue to draw closer and closer to Jesus and, and grow, have our hearts grow larger and larger in our worship of him forever. Two things. The first is it's true. It's true. That's what he says in verse 24. He, he finally reveals who's been writing all this. It's the unnamed disciple who is the beloved one of Jesus, who is the author. All, all this, the, the best way to understand this, this is the apostle John. He's a friend of Peter. He's beloved of Jesus. He's the man that wrote this down because he lived it, because he saw it with his own eyes. And he's written this down so we can know the same Jesus he knows and find the life that John himself found. It's beautiful that this is true and we have eyewitness testimony to it. But then in verse 25, it seems as if John goes into a bit of exaggeration. Like he's reaching for words to describe how awesome this is and well, maybe he just gets ahead of himself. It sounds like he's using hyperbole. He says that if the... Every one of the things that Jesus did were written down, then there wouldn't be enough room in the whole world for the books of it. Now, books are pretty compact. You can get a lot into books. You could think, well, you know, doing the math, Jesus lived 30, 33 years maybe. Now, even if you wrote long accounts of Jesus, John, surely you're getting uh, just a little ahead of yourself. I mean, surely you're exaggerating. Well, that would be the case if he were only talking about Jesus of Nazareth, who walked this earth 2,000 years ago and lived for 33 years. But as we end John's gospel, remember back to the beginning of John's gospel. And remember the identity of the man named Jesus of Nazareth. And remember the limitless list of his deeds stretching back into eternity. John 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him not anything was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. 
John draws our attention by taking a gaze back. Back before his birth in Bethlehem. Back before the prophets and the kings and the judges and the patriarchs. Back before creation itself. Back into eternity past. When the eternal son and the fame of all of God's deeds innumerable for mere creatures to count are listed. John reminds us, friends, that we have an unending list of reasons to worship Jesus. The things we have in scripture are more than enough to spend a lifetime discovering. And yet, friend, they are just the tip of the iceberg of our God. We will spend all eternity learning of Jesus, worshiping him, and drawing ever closer to him. And so ends the Gospel of John. Beautiful book showing us the beautiful Savior. But while this book is ending, brothers and sisters, our worship of Jesus is just getting started. Let's pray.